1 Corinthians chapter 5, the entire chapter, is what I'll read. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. You do not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have had to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. If you're not a member of Bethlehem and you did not receive the mailing, you need to know that It's because of a case of adultery and ongoing impenitent immorality that we're preaching what we're preaching this morning among our members and one of our missionaries. I'll spare the necessary details until you can receive them in the time of praying the vision following the service. Suffice it to say here, we're not dealing in the abstract when we read this text. Our goal is to understand it and to obey it. This morning, and it is an awesome thing that we are about to do. I enter it with more fear and trembling than I think any other morning of my ministry, not because I fear that we are wrong. I am profoundly persuaded that we are right, but because I fear the judgment of God upon Daryl Morrissey's head. I urge you now with all your heart to listen and to understand and to examine yourself and not to let Satan divert your attention away from what I say and to pray. And I'd like to pray before we continue. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that I would be faithful to this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would speak pray that there would be no pride, but rather mourning. Pray that Jesus, by his power, would come 
In his name I pray. Amen. Verse 1. The situation in Corinth is that a man is having sexual relations with either his mother or his stepmother. It's not sure. It says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. That little phrase, his father's wife, might be a way of saying that it's not his biological mother, but that his father is a widower or divorced and has remarried, and therefore he has a stepmother and is now having sexual relations with his stepmother. It may be that his father is dead or is alive. Paul doesn't say that any of those circumstances would change the fact that the son has the father's wife and it is an act of immorality that is even repudiated among the nations in which the church was living. Notice also in verse 1 that it is not a single solitary one-night stand followed by a broken-hearted act of repentance, which would have brought forth a very different response from the Apostle Paul and the church. It is an ongoing impenitent immorality because the word has is not had. Here, you see that? He has his father's wife. There is no repentance here. There is no fleeing from this immorality. He is living in it. In fact, there is boasting. Verse 2. You see how the church responded wrongly and Paul's instruction how they should have responded. It says, and you, this is you plural, you church, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. I want you to think about that verse with me for a minute because it gave me great pause when I read it. I thought about today. I thought about American evangelicalism. I thought about the church of Jesus Christ. I thought about arguments that I've heard and attitudes that I've heard expressed, not necessarily here, but sort of in general regarding church discipline. And as I thought, it occurred to me that Paul's analysis for why they did not do church discipline the way they should was exactly the opposite of the reason it isn't done today. Think. Think with me about this. Today, when discipline doesn't happen... The diagnosis of why it isn't happening is often that we are too humble to let it happen. Who are we to judge? I could never point my finger at another sinner. Who's going to cast the first stone? It's humility that is put forward as the reason you don't follow through on this kind of discipline. Or pride. If you do follow through on discipline and exert a tough love that puts a person out of the church, what's the typical criticism? Pharisaism. Pride. A holier-than-thou. You must be a holier-than-thou church. You must be a proud, arrogant, finger-pointing church. Do you see that this is exactly the opposite of the diagnosis of what was happening 
in Corinth. In Corinth, in verse 2, Paul's diagnosis is arrogance is causing tolerance and humility should have caused excommunication. Now, when I read that, it gave me pause. I said, whoa, this is strange. Why is it so different today? You have become arrogant. They were boasting that someone in their church was sleeping with his mother. Now, what kind of theology promotes that kind of boasting? Where did that come from? Well, now, we know pretty clearly where it came from, because when you read the letters of Paul, you can hear that theology coming through in his opponents. Romans 3. Romans 6. Let us sin that grace may abound. Galatians chapter 5. We are free in Christ. And Paul trembling says, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sleep with your stepmother. Don't use it as an occasion for the flesh. In other words, it was a theology that turned grace into license and freedom into lawlessness. And that theology portrayed itself as tolerant. And Paul said it was rooted in pride. Sinful toleration, not pharisaical judgment, was causing the aborting of church discipline at Corinth. And what about humility? Paul says in verse 2, You have not mourned instead. Now notice the logic of the next phrase. You have not mourned instead in order that, this would be the effect of humility and mourning, in order that, the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. It is broken-hearted humility that excommunicates. Exactly the opposite of what is said to be humble today. Humility is portrayed today as, oh, we could never, we could never say that in public. We could never point our finger. We could never put anybody out of the church. We, I mean, who, we, we couldn't cast the first stone. And the only humility that's known today is a tolerance of sin in many, many places. That's not the case here. Broken-hearted people are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. They know the horror of sin. They know their own vulnerabilities. We know our failures. We know our offenses against God. We know that there is a log in our eye. True brokenness and sorrow is the basis of excommunication in Paul's theology. True brokenness does not say, I could never judge a brother. 
True biblical brokenness reads verses 9 to 13 of this text and submits humbly under it. It does not say, I'll tell you, God, how to be gracious to this person. It listens to God and says, okay, if that's grace, I'll do it. Let's read it. Verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, I didn't mean that you shouldn't associate with the immoral people of the world or the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. He's not telling you you can't hobnob with unbelievers. You must. What is he saying? But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. That is an awesome phrase. Do you hear that? So-called brother. That's Daryl Morrissey this morning. Maybe he is and maybe he isn't. There's a name. It's called so-called brother. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Yes, Lord. We will. But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Biblical brokenness does not presume to tell God how to be gracious and say, oh, I could never do that. That's pride. That's pride cloaked with the veneer of humble independence from God. Oh, I could never do what you said to do. Rather, it takes upon itself the painful, risky, time-consuming, often oppressive process of church discipline It says, I will take the log out of my eye that I may see clearly how to do whatever eye surgery God asks me to do for my brother. It says, I will look to myself lest I too be tempted in the process of trying to follow the counsel of the living God in dealing with an erring brother. Humility does not tell God how to be gracious. It listens and tries to obey. One of our brothers, Friday morning, as we came to pray, said, John, I was praying alone this morning for Daryl, and I just broke down weeping. That's the way we come. That's the ground of excommunication. And there are some of us who for two weeks could not pray without weeping. He was my student and a good one at Bethel. I married him. I reread the marriage sermon yesterday. I ordained his hymn. I preached at his ordination. He stood in the old sanctuary right there beside Wendy and swore he would not forsake his vows. I loved Errol Morrissey. I would die for Daryl's salvation. Verse 6 says, Your boasting is not good. 
Why not? Because it's rooted in ignorance. The verse goes on. Do you not know? There's the ignorance. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, in your supposed knowledge of grace, in your supposed knowledge of freedom in which you are boasting, you're destroying the church from the inside out. You call it freedom. You call it grace. And you are ignorant. Verse 7 is Paul's alternative. Clean out the old leaven. That you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let me give you the background here. For one week after the Passover service in the Old Testament, for one week, you were supposed to have no leaven, no yeast in the house. That Paul took as a symbol of sin. And then he stood back and he said, now Christ is now the Passover lamb. The celebration of Passover is not a week, it's a lifetime. The leaven is sin, and we purge it, we fight it, we confess it, we never make peace with it, we're against it. None of us is perfect. I believe we sin every day. But we never say peace with sin. We never make a truce with sin. We declare war on sin. We hate our sin. And that's what's missing in unrepentant immorality. The pride at Corinth was saying, Christ has been sacrificed for my sins, therefore I will magnify His grace by sinning. And I have had people sit in my office and say exactly that. That they plan to stay in adultery because it magnifies the grace of God. I have had students tell me they're going to hit her up this weekend because God will forgive him. This is a common theology. Let us sin that grace may abound. When I spoke to Daryl on the phone in Bangkok, Now, I'm assuming he's going to listen to this tape, as is his wife. So I'm I'm telling you what I give an account of before him. The last text I shared with him was Titus 2.14, which says, Christ gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people. For his own possession, who are zealous for good deeds. Christ died to cleanse a people from sin. And I said, Daryl, to choose impurity week after week after week, to embrace impurity is to reject the purpose of the cross which was for your purity. It is to take, and I use this image for Daryl, and I've used it before, and it's a very good one. It's to take the spear out of the hand of the soldier at the foot of the cross 
and night after night after night ram it into the side of Jesus Christ. That's what immorality does. That's what fornication does, kids. It takes the spear and Jesus hanging there, bleeding for your purity, and rims it into his side. And I said, Daryl, you do that every time. Every hour of unrepentance is a retreat from the cross, which was for your purity. The pride of Corinth was that they presumed to cut Christ asunder. They thought they could have Christ as one who pardons while rejecting him as one who purifies. And mark it, there are many of you who try to do that. It cannot be done. If you reject Christ as a purifier, you do not have him as a pardoner. He is not a divided Christ. He is one. The evidence that you have Christ as the pardon for your sin is your passion for purity for which he died. There is no game playing here. Let us forsake the sham. Verse 7, no, clean out the old leaven that you may be what you really are, unleavened and pure. In other words, if you don't act like what you are, you aren't. The proof of your pardon is your passion for purity. What then shall we do? Well, verse 2 and verse 7 and verse 13 say that the guilty, impenitent, immoral person is to be put out of the church. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves, verse 13. But then Paul goes further and talks about delivering him to Satan. Verse 3, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In other words, Paul can't be there, but he's going to exert whatever influence he can by prayer and his authority to see that the discipline is effective. Verse four, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, that's why we're doing it after this service in about 15 minutes. And not in a little room with 10 elders. The text says you do it when the church is assembled. When you are assembled... And I with you in spirit. In other words, you can count on Paul's. They could they could account on Paul's approval and his presence and influence by prayer. With the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided now that those three words are not in the original text. And I think it's a little bit misleading the way the NASB translates it, because they give the impression that Paul is the main actor here. And I think the church is the other translations are right on that count. So translating, and I have decided that you ought to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, let me just close by reflecting on this for a minute. And then I have lots more to say before we actually do it in the following service. 
Some say that the excommunication, that is the putting the person out of the church, is the same as handing him over to Satan. And that's all you do is you vote and you exclude the person from membership and you cut him off from ordinary fellowship. And that's handing him over to Satan. I don't think that's true. I think handing him over to Satan is more than that. Several arguments. One is that verse 4 says you do this with the power of the Lord Jesus. I think that indicates that something more is happening than merely deleting a person from the church rolls. With the power of the Lord Jesus. Paul did this one other time. 1 Timothy 1.20 I have handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. And there, there's not a word about church discipline or a vote or anything. It is a spiritual act somehow by which a person is delivered into the hands of Satan that something good might come. Here's the key, I believe, that unlocks the basic meaning of what's happening. The only other place in the whole Bible, besides 1 Timothy 1.20, in other words, the only place outside the writings of Paul where the exact words hand over to Satan occurs one time. Job chapter 2, verse 6. Same Greek words in the Greek Old Testament. And it goes like this. You remember the situation. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, I hand Job over to you, only spare his life. That's the meaning of this text, I believe. The next verse says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And the result, Job 42, verse 6 Now my eyes have seen the Lord and I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And that's my prayer for Daryl Morrissey. Satan became a means of Job's holiness. And you know, that isn't the only place where that happened. Second Corinthians 12, Paul describes the thorn in the flesh as what? A messenger of Satan given to me. By whom? Jesus. Read it. Verse 7 of Second Corinthians 12. To keep me from exalting myself. That's not Satan's purpose. That's Jesus' purpose. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Well, now what is going on here? Here's what's going on. The king of the universe, the absolute ruler over all demons and Satan and nations, takes the hands of Satan and says, serve me and serve the holiness of my servant and buffet him. And Satan becomes the instrument of the sanctification of the saints. And I glory in your defeat, Satan. 
I glory in your helpless, lackey status to my Lord Jesus. You, Satan, are used. You don't rule. Jesus rules. And when you intrude yourself into the life of a saint, Jesus reigns. And you get no more leash than he will. Oh, we've got victory this morning. Believe me, we serve a risen, triumphant Christ, and we have nothing to fear. Paul prayed when he got the thorn that it would be taken away. And who responds? Jesus responds. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, when Paul says in this text this morning, with the power of the Lord Jesus present among you, I think what he means is Jesus will, when we act, commission Satan to destroy the flesh of Daryl Morrissey if that's what it takes to get him back. It might be boils. It might be AIDS. It would be as nothing if it yielded the salvation of his spirit. I hope Many of you will stay. I need you. Let's pray. As we dismiss, Lord, and those who need to go, go during the bridge. I ask that the prayer teams who stand at the front would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I ask that those who feel themselves distressed or concerned about anything at all, that they would feel the freedom in these next ten minutes to come and, and pray with the prayer teams. And I ask, Lord, that you would maintain a spirit of earnestness, protect us from the evil one who does not want us to do this, and grant, I pray, that we would obey in a spirit of brokenness and humility. And... If you would be pleased, let the phone ring from Bangkok before we're done and spare us this deed. Daryl knows we're doing this. Tom Steller was on the telephone with him at midnight his time last night. He knows exactly when. And he knows exactly what. He's read every word of our motion. Lord, may he tremble. In Jesus' name, amen.